Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis, and this Ape Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today, we're going to learn about a larger-than-life rare book dealer called Johnny Jenkins, who blazed a trail through Texas, the rare book world, and high-stakes poker games. Our guest is Michael Vinson, the author of Bluffing Texas Style, the arsons, forgeries, and high-stakes poker capers of rare book dealer Johnny Jenkins, which is published by the University of Oklahoma Press. Johnny Jenkins was an innovative but controversial book dealer. He was an expert in Texana, a market that he dominated, and worked in the top tier of antiquarian bookselling, pulling off some of the largest deals in the business in the 1970s and 1980s. Welcome, Michael. Uh, thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I enjoyed the book. Um, so my very first question is why? Why did you decide to write about Johnny Jenkins? Was it because he didn't fit the stereotype of a antiquarian book dealer, or was it because he crossed the line um, a few times? I think the first thing that drew me to it was the idea that, uh, of trying to solve the mystery. This was a cold case. Nearly every rare bookseller remembers where they were on the morning of April 17, 1989, uh, because uh, the news of Jenkins' death spread like wildfire. I was working at a small rare book library in Dallas, and when the news came in that Johnny Jenkins had been found shot in the head in a river in Texas, and I was in Dallas at the time, I, I was just struck. I, I couldn't believe it, and neither could anyone else. And then, of course, because of his large and outlandish lifestyle, Rumors started to swirl. Was it the mafia? Was it the mob? Was it a grifter? Somebody that just, you know, shot and robbed him? Or, or what was behind it? And so that question always loomed there, and I wasn't the only one that was drawn to it. Calvin Trillin wrote about it for The New Yorker back in 1989. But he was very close, obviously, to the circumstances at the time, but he couldn't get a straight answer. A lot of people, nobody wanted to believe that Johnny Jenkins was bent. And so that mystery always was with me because I had met him, I had worked with lots of people that were very close to him. And, uh, and then at one point about three years ago, I realized that his widow had given his papers to Southern Methodist University. And I decided uh, while I was in Dallas that I would go by the archives and just take a look and see what was there. A number of people had warned me that they thought the archives had been purged. In other words, that there wouldn't be anything in there. But I'm a big fan of Robert Caro's, and I love his motto, which is turn every page. And I got in there, I looked around for a bit, and I realized there was more than enough there to write a book. So how well-known was Jenkins? He was a member of the ABAA, quite a senior member. Um, he was on the uh, front page of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, Washington, hundreds of newspapers in America. He was actually fairly well, he's probably the most well-known dealer of his time. So, uh, as you say, on the day of his, the news was announced of his death, it, so it rocked the antiquarian bookselling world. Yes, yeah, the, uh, you know, rare booksellers have this saying, if uh, someone sneezes in New York City, someone in Los Angeles says, Gesundheit. 
Right, okay. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit more about the character of Jenkins? What was he like? What did he look like? What was his, what was his appearance? Jenkins was short. He had a baby face, and he was always very self-conscious about his height. He, he didn't like being short. His, one of his rare book managers was six foot one. And he would sometimes look at him and say, I wish I had your height. That, that was something that really pegged him and bothered him. Um, but he liked to uh, draw lots of attention to himself. He once showed up at a very reserved Boston book fair. It's held in the fall. And he was wearing shiny alligator boots. And he had on, you know, a pinstripe suit. And he had a full-length mink fur coat. And puffing away on a Cuban cigar and a cowboy hat. A cowboy hat. So he liked to be surrounded by people and have people talking about him? He loved the attention. He loved the attention. But, of course, that's one of the dichotomies that comes up in his life is when you begin realizing that all of these fabulous rarities that he's handling many copies of, the famous Texas rarities, like the Declaration of the Texas Declaration of Independence was from 1836. It's when the Texans decided to separate and revolt from the Mexicans. And the Alamo is part of that, of course. And, you know, this, this is the document that most Texana collectors would love to have. And if Johnny had actually found a real one, he would have released press releases like crazy to let people know that he had one. Yet he sells 12 or 15 of these things and never once puts it in a catalog or issues a press release about it that he has it. And he's a publicity hound. He loves publicity. And that, that's what really got me looking at this case was like, why does such a publicity hound like that not issue press releases about all of these great finds that anybody else would? Um, one, one more question about his background before we go into some of the illicit activities. So he, he pulled off some huge deals in the 70s and early 80s, correct? He, he was... Um, in particular, there's one particularly huge deal for Americana and Texas materials that you describe in the book, but he, he was very, very successful at acquiring amazing inventory. Yes, he was. He was a great deal maker and a terrible rare bookseller. But he had the vision to pull off deals that very few other people could. So for the Eberstadt collection, the Eberstats were legendary booksellers. Of, uh, of rare Americana. In fact, my first book published a few years ago was about the Everstats. University of Oklahoma did that one too. And this inventory was legendary and the Everstats had gotten to the point where they didn't even bother to answer letters from people unless they figured they were extremely wealthy. They just didn't want to waste their time anymore and because they had been so successful in the business. But finally, around 1975, they wanted to sell this collection but whoever pulled it off was going to have to get the financing for a $3 million sale of books. To put that in today's dollars, that would be like a rare bookseller trying to pull together the financing to buy a 30 or a $35 million inventory. And so you can imagine that if there was a transaction like that today, it would still hit the front pages of papers because it would be so large and so unusual. And it certainly did then too, New York Times and Wall Street Journal among others. Now, if I, as I go through the book, there's, I, I could list the activities that are illicit. So, selling stolen goods, selling 
goods that he almost certainly knew were forged, possibly... Oh, he absolutely knew they were forged. Yeah. He bought them from the forger. Right, okay. I, I found the check stubs to the forger in the, uh, in the archives. So that was uh, Dorman David? Yes. Right. Uh, but if I go through the list further, it could be that he also possibly forged... And then at the end, which we'll come to later on, there are two suspected arsons. And then if you just go through day-to-day -day activities, um, he got in trouble for uh, selling uh, items described as complete but were incomplete. Yes. Would that be fair to say, <laughs> that list of five, absolutely. That's, five areas? That's absolutely what he did. That's the story of uh, Bobby French, the, uh, the fellow who's very successful in the oil business in West Texas and starts collecting with Johnny. And, and for Johnny, it's his last big customer. Um, in the rare book business, as in the casino business, a huge customer like that is called a whale. And this was Johnny's whale. Right. And, I mean, you know, he does a half a million dollars worth of business with him over three years, which would probably be like $2 million worth of business today over, over three years. And huge, huge sums of money. So the thing I, I, I didn't understand, Michael, is... The, the antiquarian book business is built on trust. Um, how was he allowed to continue working in the business when really these weren't capers, they were criminal activities? Oh, they were absolutely criminal activities. He was successful to outside appearances for a number of reasons. First off, he was very careful with the forgeries never to announce or publicize them, otherwise it would have raised too many questions. So he handles the forgeries by just offering one to a customer, and the standard line that he could use is, listen, you can't show this to anybody because I have 10 other customers that will be upset that you bought one, and I didn't offer it to them. And so you have this secrecy in the business anyway that's there, and he capitalizes on that secrecy through this affinity fraud. He uses the goodwill of people in a way to protect himself. People are inclined to trust, uh, you know, as long as you're not cheating, you're not paying, you know, if you're paying your bills on time, um, the whole business runs on trust. And yet, for a fraudster, they can use those relationships in a way to their benefit and go unexposed for a long period of time because nobody knows what they're doing. They're very, very good at hiding it. There are two documents that you refer to um, in length in the book. Um, a letter sent from the Alamo by uh, Colonel Travis asking for help, and as you mentioned earlier, the, the um, Texas Declaration of Independence. Um, these seem like really important Texas documents. Wouldn't it be a mistake to be trying to pass off forgeries of something so, so famous. Ah, but the money is so, so good if you can actually find one. And I've never had either one. I've only seen one copy in my all my years in business, an authentic copy of the Texas Declaration of Independence to sell. That was at Sotheby's in 2004, and it brought uh, three quarters of a million dollars. Wow. The other one I've never seen, uh, and you know, the other one would bring maybe half that amount or a little less, but still tremendous amounts of money. 
You also make an interesting point that um, that some collectors, when they have the chance to own a document of this nature, don't want to remotely believe that it could possibly be forged or or not right. They're just so excited to own it. Well, that's the that's the passion of almost every collector is to have something that nobody else has. And Johnny was fulfilling that need, and by stressing the need for secrecy, so that the other collectors wouldn't get jealous you know he could protect himself and actually sell one of these frauds to nearly every collector and each one believing they had this unique rarity that nobody else had the uh and and so that's a grand deception you know and a business that runs on trust there's a little quote i have in the book here that i love texas history was jenkins religion john like the vicar conjured the authority, and the customers who marveled at his rarities supplied the faith. Is this the facsimile printing of a Texas broadside, or is it the authentic printed reliquary of a pivotal, of a pivotal moment in Texas history? A passion for the Lone Star State drew Jenkins to rare books, but somewhere in the journey he became a counterfeit curate who lied about his relics. I couldn't help thinking about the, uh, the Alamo letter the most. Um, on another tangent, how did the letter get out of the Alamo? Ah, well, they actually had a couple of people who did escape. Uh, you know, there was a manuscript that was taken out of the Alamo, and then and then it was printed and sort of, you know, distributed as it could be throughout Texas at the time. But they had a couple of messengers that managed to escape out for pleas for help. So down in Texas, there are numerous collectors who just love items associated with the history of that state. Yes, yes, there are. Not only there, but uh, for example, uh, you know, the pop star Phil Collins uh, loves the Alamo and collects things about the Alamo. I've met him. Almost certainly sparked by the movie. (laughs) For Phil Collins? Well, he's probably a little bit older than me, but that movie, the John uh, Wayne... He's, he's from England like you, and he grew up watching Davy Crockett. Yeah. Um, Sunday afternoons. I can't tell you how many times I've watched that film at about 2 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon on BBC Two over and over and over again. <laughs> well, he was inspired by it, and he has one of the greatest Alamo collections today. Yeah, yeah. No, I can understand it. Um, so as I went through the, the book, um, and you were... It seemed that that Jenkins was going deeper and deeper into the hole the, of the troubles he'd caused or the, the troubles he'd made, um, and that included playing poker. So he was a pretty good poker player, it seemed, good enough to play at professional level, but that was also part of the problem as well by the end, correct? Yes, that's right. He, uh, he started in card playing, um, actually in the 1970s, and he took uh, lessons from a fellow named Ed Thorpe, who invented the system for counting cards in blackjack. And so in the 1960s, late 60s, he goes to Thorpe, he figures this out. I I saw his notes from when he studied with Thorpe, and then he goes to Vegas, and he really starts cleaning house on the blackjack tables. In fact, his wife would go over to the tables once every hour just to clean out the chips so that the pit bosses wouldn't get too suspicious and would let him keep playing. 
And, uh, you know, it was uh, a bit frustrating for Jenkins because he wanted her to cash all the chips and put the money in the safe. And sometimes she would pick up all the chips and say, I'm going shopping now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that success, he believed that he could emulate that in poker as well. Once he was banned from the casinos, once they figured out he was counting cards in blackjack and he couldn't play anywhere. A few years later, but he always played poker at home and always had these poker games going, and he goes and tries out his hand in 1983 and, and actually wins one of the lesser games. He never wins a championship, and oftentimes he loses much, much more than he wins, but he's, he's addicted to this gambling. He can't let go of it. That thrill enveloped him. He just uh, needed to play, even though it brought him to ruin. So would you say he actually was um, a classic addict? He seems to be. He seems to be. I think the appeal of poker for him is poker is a game of telling stories. Now, I came into this, you know, writing this book knowing nothing about poker, and I needed to learn. So I went out to Las Vegas, and the Bellagio Casino has the most live poker games of anybody else. I talked to the pit boss there. And he said, sure, you can spend as much time as you want in the room watching the games and watching the players. And so I spent hours in the evenings there just watching these fellows, men and women, go after a poker game. And after 10 or 12 hours of watching this, I realized what it is they were doing. Poker players are telling stories. They tell stories by how they play with their chips, how they stack them, how they shuffle them. They tell stories by how they handle their cards, how they look at other players. Every player is telling a story that they're trying to get somebody else to believe. And the problem with Jenkins was, as much as he loved telling stories, he was never very good at telling poker stories. He, he also had quite a flamboyant lifestyle, it would seem. You described the Stetson, oh, yeah. but the sports car as well, the Mercedes. Um, Right. The, uh, he has the Mercedes. He had a Jaguar sports car. He loved living flamboyantly. On the other hand, though, he was very impractical. He never learned how to fuel, the, uh, to fuel his cars at a self-service gas station. One time he runs out of gas, just barely pulls into a, a convenience store with a self-service, and he goes in and asks the girl to come out and fill up his car with gas. And she says, well, it's self-service. And he goes, I don't know how to do it. Go ahead, fill it up, and here's $20 for your trouble. <laughs> yeah. Um, back to the ABAA, um, he rose to quite a prominent position. Why didn't his yeah. peers latch on to some of the activities he was doing? Everybody knew he was successful, but he was also very good at hiding things. So nobody knew what the real problems were. And that, that goes back to the issue of trust in the business. And so Jenkins, when he first applies to the Antiquarian uh, Booksellers Association, his membership is declined, it's turned down. And that was in 1970, and it was turned down because in one of his earlier catalogs, he had been offering John F. Kennedy letters as signed by JFK, when in fact they were all signed by his secretaries. And he protested when they turned him down and said, well, this is outrageous. You know, I, 
I was just uh, I was just a young bookseller. I didn't know what I was doing, and he tried to use that for his uh, defense. But Robert Black, the man that was the autograph dealer that sold him the letters, wrote back and said, "Mr. Jenkins, your memory is faulty in this regard. You knew those letters were secretarially signed because I sold them to you that way on the invoice." <laughs> you know. And uh, so he had to maneuver a way to get into the association. He found a way by cheating the mafia the next year. Please tell us a little and, bit uh, about that. That's uh, I, I love that story with the FBI. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Jenkins always makes this story out to be, this was one of his classic, how I'm a good guy bookseller. And he turns his image around and gets accepted in the ABAA and just a few years, uh, four years after that, is elected to the board, and a few years after that, he's president of the association. But his story is, some mafiosa comes to visit him in Austin, offers him some stolen books, books for sale. He realizes they're stolen. He sets up a sting in New York City and busts the mafia with the help of the FBI. The real story is that Jenkins was supposed to be the fence on this deal and that the mafia had agreed to work with him because of another contact that he had worked with previously named James Rissick. But Rissick had cheated Jenkins in the previous year as well on another deal. And so when Jenkins realizes that he can, he he meets with the mafioso, he looks at the materials, but the thefts that the mafia guys were, uh, what they were offering him, the thefts were advertised in A.B. Bookman's Weekly, which was the trade magazine at the time. Jenkins realizes that once thefts are advertised, you can't sell any of these materials. They're all burned. There's too much publicity. Rare books are too rare. You can't go out and try and sell something like that once it's been publicized. And he conceives of the idea that he can turn on the mafiosos, he can burn Rissick, and he can turn his reputation around at the same time and get into the ABAA, which is exactly what happens. He flies to New York City to meet with the mafia guy, the mafia guy meets him in the J.D.'s Motel, which was the uh, hotel that was used for the uh, Goodfellas movie. It was a real mafia hangout. And uh, they show him, one guy, Kenneth Paul, shows him the stolen goods. He looks them over. They agree on a price of $50,000, and Jenkins says he has to go out, call his bank to get the money. He agrees to come back with the money and the stolen goods. Meanwhile, the FBI is watching, but Jenkins is worried because he never sees them. But later on, when he leaves, he meets up with the FBI, and when they go back, supposedly with the money, Kenneth Paul is there, but he has a gun, no stolen, none of the rare books are in there that Jenkins has seen before. Of course, Jenkins doesn't have the money. The FBI arrests him, they arrest a colleague of his, and they find the stolen, some of the stolen materials in the trunk of another mobster's car behind the motel. But for Jenkins, this, this thing plays across America the newswires and, and the headlines, and he gets hundreds of letters from people. And, uh, and you know, when he reapplies to the ABA, he's just ushered in like royalty. And people say that the antiquarian book-selling business is, uh, is a dry and quiet business. <laughs> and then you hear about stories like this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of excitement. I was driven to this case by that cold case aspect of it, of being able to solve it, and have been utterly surprised by the reaction. I had no idea there would be this much interest, but the Wall Street Journal reviewed the book and the New York Post, 
and people were just really pulled to this story of uh, you know a criminal that is in the guise of something where we consider the the, the sale of culture. So do you think the people and it's something strikes people? Sorry, Michael. Mm-hmm. Do you think the people that he employed, he had a number of locations, uh, like his rare book managers, w- was aware of what was happening? No, Jenkins was very good at separating what they would find out or not find out. They, um, some of them did know, for example, that he was substituting inferior books for books that, you know, the complete books that were supposed to have been sold. At one point, there's a beautiful copy of a rare book with a map for $15,000, and Jenkins happens to get an order for it from a good customer, but Jenkins happens to see that there's a fact, uh, uh, somebody selling a copy of, uh, a regular copy of the book with a facsimile map for $1,500. He tells his employees to buy that one and ship that one instead. Most of the time they do this because they don't want to upset the apple cart, I think. You know, they, they don't have, it's their employment, and it's hard enough to get a job in the rare book business as it is. Um, you would have to ask each of them why they would have done something like that. Not everyone did, by a long shot, but several of them did. And um, I think it's something that probably troubles them to this day when they look back on it. So if we come to the end of his life, he was um, killed by a gunshot. But what I found um uh, interesting was that no gun was discovered. Now that was the great mystery and I think if uh, Johnny were looking down from heaven you know he would still be secretly pleased by that. I have a theory about how that could have been done but it's very evident that he committed suicide. He called his best friend the night before and said you know he had found out that weekend that he was going to be indicted for the arsons and the friend uh, on Monday morning that the grand jury indictments had been, they were ready to be served. You may or may not know that in the U.S. justice system, if the accused person dies before the indictments are served, the indictments are never released. And so he tells him he's going to commit suicide, and his best friend says, Johnny, don't do this. Sure, they can show it was arson, but they can't as easily show or prove that you're the arsonist. But Johnny says no, and it's not really the fear of the arsons that's driving him. It's the fact that he knows the arson investigators have also looked at his gambling debts as a motive for the arsons. And those gambling debts would reveal the fact that he'd hidden from everybody that he wasn't the champion player that he pretended to be. He wanted to be so badly, but he wasn't. And that revelation was the thing that he was most afraid of. And, um, you know... So he goes into the river. His body is, is found the next, uh, that afternoon by someone who's fishing for catfish by the side of the river. They swept the river for the gun. It's a very, very slow-moving river. I mean, when I visited the uh, Colorado River in Texas, you could throw a couple of sticks out in it, and if the breeze were going the wrong way, the breeze would send the, uh, the sticks upstream. That's how slow-moving it is. So his body was found 20 or 25 feet from where they presumed that he shot himself. Now, what did he do with the gun? That's a great disappearing trick. I personally believe that he had an accomplice, uh, one friend who knew everything about his poker debts, the only man that probably did, and it was closest. It was an attorney that worked with him in the business. And his name was John Pruitt, and Pruitt uh, had been with him from the beginning, all of the frauds and everything he'd done, Pruitt was in on it. 
I think that Johnny went into the... We know that the day that he goes into the river on that Sunday afternoon near Bastrop, Texas, that he has earlier in the day stopped at a convenience store, bought a sandwich, a Coke, and a bag of ice. They find the receipt in the car, and they find a half-drunk Coke and a half-eaten sandwich in the car. But there's no bag of ice in the car. Where was the bag of ice? Well, when he went into the river, if he had tied the gun to the bag of ice, if he had his friend wait up on the bridge above where he wouldn't be able to see the river, he could have waited for the gunshot, gone down to the river, retrieved the gun from the bag of ice, and never seen the body. Uh, drownings and bodies in water like that typically go down within 10 seconds. They go down very fast once, once somebody's dead. They only reemerge days later when the gas is built up in the body. So he left us with a mystery that goes on. He left us with a mystery and of, of a sorts. You know, if I could interview Pruitt, the attorney, I certainly would have done it, but Pruitt died in 2007. Right, okay. All right, Michael, it's a, it's a hell of a story. Um, now, my final question. Uh, what book or books are you currently reading? Ah, right now I'm reading books about what I think will be the topic of my next book. I'm very interested in the Mark Hoffman bombing and forgery case, forgery case in Utah in the 1980s. Hoffman deceived the world's leading autograph experts. He was, he's considered to be the master forger, and as his fraud was beginning to be unraveled, instead of uh, killing himself, he killed two people with bombs and then actually accidentally blew himself up with a third bomb, but lived. He's in prison in Utah now. Um, there have been a number of books written about this, and in fact, there's supposed to be a Netflix series coming out about it as a documentary next year. But what's drawn me to this is I've had a number of intersections with this case through my life, my rare book life, over the years. And I believe that he had an accomplice. I don't believe that he did it by himself. And so what I'm planning to do is write a book about that, who his accomplice was, and tell the truth about the Hoffman forgeries and murders. All right, I'm detecting a theme in, in uh, where you're going here. <laughs> well, they both intersected my lives, uh, Jenkins in a small way and Hoffman in a large way. And uh, I, so I'm fortunate in the Hoffman case to have the help of one of the world's leading autograph experts, uh, Ken Rendell. He was the man that uncovered the Hitler forgeries right. back in the 1990s when the Hitler diaries were found. And, uh, and so, so I'm, I'm reading books like Salamander which was by Linda Silito, a really well-done book about the case, as well as Robert Lindsay's A Gathering of Saints and Rick Turley's uh, Victims about the role of the LDS Church and, and what happened with them. And all of those books are available on eight books. All right, lovely. Um, that's all we have time for this week, Michael. I, I want to give uh, many thanks to you, Michael, for joining us. Thank you very much, Richard. I enjoyed it. Michael is the author of Bluffing Texas Style, The Arsons, Forgeries, and High Stakes Poker Capers of Rare Book Dealer, Johnny Jenkins. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all again soon.